I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. As Chief Underwriting Officer of Tokyo Marine Kiln, Matthew Shaw has one of the top 10 individual underwriting jobs in the London market, marshalling a stamp capacity of £1.5 billion at one of Lloyd's best-known lead markets, Syndicate 510. In many ways, this business is a microcosm of the London market as a whole. A soft market fall into loss was followed by significant re-underwriting. Then the business bounced significantly back into profit in 2019, only to take a large short-tail hit from COVID in 2020, which it has weathered undaunted. 2021 has seen a bullish 14.9% preemption in capacity amid the heady combination of significant growth in submissions and continually improving underwriting conditions across the market. Matthew is very easy to talk to, and together we embark on a comprehensive tour of his views on the market, market reform and innovation, culture change, and where TMK fits into all of this. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Rick J. Lindsay, Chairman and CEO of Claims Direct Access, otherwise known as CDA. We all read about the claims nightmares in the United States of America, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, and the sky is falling. Hardly a day goes by without the news of reserve strengthening at major carriers. However, it's not all bad news. In the United States of America, we have the best legal system in the world, which allows you to fight frivolous claims and litigation and come out on top. In this kind of environment, you must get smarter about how you handle your claims and who your partners are. You have to move fast and be robust. CDA has been handling claims for over 40 years nationwide and has a team of 46 claims professionals, including 12 highly skilled attorneys and litigators. We have handled cases for major Lloyd syndicates since 1994, as well as U.S.-based major carriers, and have closed over 70,000 claims since 1994 nationwide. Not settling frivolous litigations is a must. CDA Claim Service means going the extra mile, handling claims quickly and vigorously with a proactive approach. Why not get in contact now to see how CDA can do the same amazing work for you and your partners that they do for me every day? Visit www.claimsdirectaccess.com today. Matthew, thank you so much for giving us some time out of your busy schedule to talk to the Voice of Insurance. You've been in TMK for how long, actually? I'd have to. May last year. So I started straight into lockdown, which was a little bit unfortunate in terms of getting to know certainly people, I think is probably the piece that I've missed out on. Although we did have certain time last year to get back into the office. And I'm speaking to you today, as you can see from the office. So we're starting to get back, which is great. And it's something that I think not only myself, but I think most of the underwriting community have missed actually being physically in the city, being able to meet and greet people and just socialise a little bit, get back to what feels a bit more like normality. I was back in the city last week for my first face-to-face meeting for lunch, and it was fantastic. So the city's coming back, the London market is coming back in a physical form. And in many ways, it looks like TMK's coming back. You've preempted substantially into 2021. So does that mean your rehabilitation and your re-underwriting exercises is now complete? In my view, it's never complete. We certainly won't be looking, I don't think, for very substantial growth across the board for next year. I think rather it will be a continual process of trying to improve the overall portfolio performance by looking at opportunities in the stronger performing lines, 
And as I said, in my view, portfolio management is an absolutely continual process and it should adapt and reflect really where you see the underwriting opportunities. And, you know, underwriting discipline is obviously absolutely the key throughout the cycles. What I found TMK very much being a, a leading underwriter, it is absolutely focused now on underwriting discipline. So I think, you know, we're putting ourselves into a, a great position for the remainder of this year and as we go through into next year. And specifically, where are the best opportunities generally? Where are you most happy? I think we've seen, and we have seen over the last couple of years, a differential market, certain areas and certain lines of business. We've seen very good, strong rating growth over the last two to three years. And others have been pretty slow to react. Open market property, as an example, we've seen good rate growth and we've seen a significant uptick in the amount of submissions coming into the London market. I'd say probably we've seen more submissions this year than we've seen probably in a decade or so. And that's combined with very positive rate movements. And in that world, we're probably starting to see a little bit of momentum come out of the market. We're still seeing positive rate movement, but the scale of the upwards movement is now single digit rather than double digit. You know, other areas, certain casualty lines, we're seeing strong upwards movement and we continue to see strong upwards movement. Aviation, I would say, is the same. Again, continued upwards movement. Others have been a bit slow. You know, upstream energy, A&H, they are showing very modest signs, but very much single digit signs. Cyber is an interesting one. That's been a very challenging market, as most of us will be aware over the last few years with the uptick in frequency and severity of ransomware losses. But we're now probably over the last three, four months or so, really starting to see things move positively there, both terms, conditions and rates. So I would say it's a constantly moving landscape, almost by line of business. So you were mentioning about open market uh, property there, perhaps losing a bit of momentum. But are you overall still happy with those that you're still getting rate increases? And presumably those are now compounded on compounded rate increases. So overall, are you happy with rate adequacy? We very much would be happy with rate adequacy in a line such as open market property. I think others, we would still say, are well away from what we would consider to be real adequacy. And the slow upwards trajectory of some of those lines means it could be a while before they get to adequacy, in our view. But you're confident that it's on a journey and it's going in the right direction and you feel it probably will get there. So you have to sort of keep your powder dry until that happens. We will certainly be keeping our powder dry until we're in a place where we believe that we are at or above adequacy. I'm doubtful, to be honest, if some lines will get there because the trajectory at the moment is very slow. But it may be that if we were to get a further two to three years of rate improvement, even if it's slow rate improvement, we may get to adequacy. Obviously, in the course of rejigging and refocusing your portfolio back towards profit, back towards underwriting discipline, you exit certain lines. What would it take for you to ever consider going back into some of those lines? It's something that we are constantly challenging ourselves on. Because I think in order to create an ultimate diverse portfolio, we should be constantly challenging ourselves on these things. And what we would look at in an exited class is we'd look at whether there's a different underwriting approach and or whether the rates and terms and conditions have improved sufficiently for us to come back. And I think I definitely wouldn't rule out a cautious return to certain classes that we may have exited for 2022 and beyond. 
it's just a matter of never saying never and always keeping your eye on where the opportunities are and presumably if you can get the talent available to re-enter. Very much so. I think a combination of all those factors, yes. But our world is the ENS world and I think it would be wrong of us not to continually re-look at all areas of business where we could potentially have opportunities. I couldn't do a podcast in 2020 or 2021 without mentioning the word COVID. You took a big provision, like many Lloyd's underwriters in your 2020 results. How much sort of uncertainty left is in the COVID number for you going forward? Is it sort of a kitchen sink type number, do you think? Or you feel that confident that it's not going to be one of these ones that keeps sort of deteriorating? I think we very much believe that we are robustly reserved on COVID. And I think nothing to date that we've seen would challenge those assumptions. So I think we sit comfortably with what we reserve to date. There is always the outside possibility of a court somewhere overruling a contract terms, which is the unknown. But, you know, we'd like to think and hope that the chances of that are relatively remote. And I would assume that your numbers are relatively short tail focused. Yes. So you're less worried about other longer tail and more difficult things that are going to progress over a longer period. Yeah, absolutely. Our book is a short tail book and there's nothing in there from a long tail that we think is worrying in our portfolio. I want to talk about London market issues and futuristic issues. You've always been known in the marketplace as an enthusiastic adopter of innovation, of often pioneering new types of coverage and other things. I'd like to start off with that. You've been involved in all sorts of innovative products, things like reputational risk, that kind of thing. I would associate TMK with that, with pushing through into new types of business that have not been done before. I wonder, coming in as CEO, if you can assess the sort of historical return that you've had on those sorts of investments, which obviously are substantial investments because you have to spend a lot of intellectual capital on doing those new things. We do very much see ourselves as an innovator market. And indeed, we've recently established a group-wide forum to look at global opportunities. And that involves several of the TM group companies, because I think the London market does attract those entrepreneurial and innovative thinking. So we do end up being a conduit for innovative products. And hence, we are setting up this forum where even if we only took a small share of it as a group, you know, we may want to take a bigger position. And London does seem to be a hub for that business. And indeed, with some of the new Lloyd Syndicate starting up, we haven't and I haven't specifically looked and said, okay, if we were to take the more recent innovative products, such as IP, such as we're involved in the parcel project, etc. The volumes at the moment are not very significant. But what I do think it's a, we spend quite a lot of time in our underwriting committee discussing all sorts of innovative products. And this could be anything from the pre-existing ones, but it could also be parametric products that we're involved with. It could be we had a debate the other day about autonomous vehicles, all sorts of things. It's a very good, interesting underwriting debate, and it does spark other thinking. So I think along with the investment that we've made in it, not just from a purely, we can look at it and say, these products have produced X million of underwriting profit. I think there are other benefits in terms of the way we start to think about underwriting and the way we approach underwriting, that some of these innovation products just make you think a little bit differently. So I think they're of huge value to the both HUTM and I think also they're of huge value to the London market because I think they add some credibility and they do focus that entrepreneurial 
spirit back into the London market, which perhaps has been a little bit lacking over the last few years. So it's kind of refocusing your role within the Tokyo Marine Group globally as being perhaps because of the London market outpost to be that market scout and pioneer, checking out all the new innovative things that are being tried out, new covers and breaking new ground. Yes. And also, we shouldn't really be looking at the numbers. We should be looking at there are much wider benefits and also the benefits, which obviously one that's rubbed off on me is that perception of you being an innovative underwriter. So being the sort of carrier that someone should come to if they have a particular problem that no one else can solve. Very much so. Very much so, yeah. One bit of innovation that's happened in the last 12 months that's been particularly interesting has been the development, further development of automatic or semi-automatic algorithmic underwriting. Obviously, as a market innovator, I presume you're keeping a, a close watching eye on that. And do you have any plans to do something similar? The answer is yes. We are looking at several products which look at different ways of assuming business by the use of technology-based initiatives. And that would be both the way that we assume the business, but also there's an element of automatic portfolio management within the way it assumes the business. And we're sort of looking at how we can use those products and that innovation, both ourselves as TMK, but also within TM Group, and also trying to introduce other potential third-party carriers into that in certain areas where we may be asked to deploy perhaps a bigger capacity than we're comfortable with. But there's several things that we've got on the go at the moment, which I probably can't go into too much detail on. But the answer is yes. I mean, it is very much on our agenda and it does fit in with that overall innovation space and how we can use technology in that space to assist with all of the aspects and with the efficiency of assuming the business as well. Would it be likely to be a new balance sheet or something that you can do within Syndicate 510? Well, I think it will be a combination potentially. So we would generally use 510, but we also have several other partner markets that we use for various existing products. So, you know, we would always talk to other partner capital providers if there's new innovative products that we may want to put out. And definitely sort of algorithmic, automatic type structures are the things we should be thinking of. Potentially, if the product itself suits that, I mean, not all products clearly would suit that approach, but I think if it's the more homogenous type business where efficiency of assuming the business is critical, then yes. Talking about homogenous type of business, obviously a very large Lloyd's business and also well known as being a big writer of delegated authority business. What do you think? Obviously, there's a lot of change of foot within delegated authority. What do you think the future of that sort of business is going to look like in this new digital world that we're starting to create in London? I mean, I think delegated business and clearly, you know, as you say, TMK is a very significant writer of delegated business within the London market. I think it's still a very effective way of assuming business in many lines, but there are currently inefficiencies in the whole delegated process. And I can see as part of the Lloyd's blueprint, for example, and other initiatives that we do need as a market to get more efficient and effective and reduce the costs involved in the process. And I think the overall process does need to be streamlined if it is to remain such a big part of the overall Lloyd's and London market business you know, ideally, we do need to get efficiencies and bring the costs of doing that business down. But I think it does remain an effective way of assuming business. And on that subject with the blueprint, blueprint two, much more specific and sort of a list of very specific goals that Lloyd's has got. 
do you think that's the answer to most of your most pressing problems, your top priorities? I mean, I think that the blueprint is clearly aimed at creating efficiencies, which, you know, as mentioned, is clearly needed across the board. I think improving both open market and delegated placements with next generation PPL, virtual rooms is a good start. It does very much rely on technology to a large part. And, you know, I think as we've witnessed over the last 15 months or so, the London market has demonstrated that it can operate remarkably efficiently, remotely and electronically. And I think having really been sort of forced into this remote working situation, I think that has very much accelerated electronic placement in a way that just wouldn't have happened without the necessity for it to happen. It did feel like the London market had a lot of catching up to do in terms of efficiencies, electronic placements, etc. So I think this has moved us forward. Now, whether Blueprint 2 will be transformational in its outcome, I think we'll have to wait and see. But I think it's clearly something does need to be done to change the market in a way that it, perhaps it hasn't been challenged to do enough over the course of the last decades, really, actually. So I think Blueprint 2 is a, a bold step in the right direction. And the recent announcement about the data standards, do you think that's absolutely the right sort of thing that you'll be able to siphon in all that information so that your back office, you don't have to rekey stuff? Do you think that's the right sort of way to go? I think one of the sort of inefficiencies, if you like, of a subscription market is we are all sitting in the city with armies of people rekeying data. And that's through the broking community and through the entirety of the underwriting community. And I think inevitably, if we're going to get efficiencies, it will have to involve data because 10 subscription market all keying in the same data is horribly inefficient. And it's boring as well. I mean, that's the other thing. I don't <laughs> it's boring. And if 10 people key in data, you're going to get four or five different mistakes each time which have to be corrected, et cetera. So the whole once and done way of data has to be the way forward. Before we leave this subject, obviously you're a very big, massively established Lloyd's lead market, I suppose at the core of what people envisage when we imagine images conjured up when people say Kiln and TMK now, you think of a classic Lloyd's lead. With all this change and some of this automatic capacity, and you also mentioned about different capacity providers that you will have different relationships with, what do you think the relationship between leaders and followers within the London market going to be looking like in about 10 years' time? That's a very, very interesting debate, isn't it? And I think the lead follow hasn't quite sort of been fully formulated yet. And I think it would be fascinating to see how it does develop. As you said, TMK is a very significant leader of business. We probably lead by premium income north of two thirds of the business. And in some classes, it's significant more than that. And I think given that, it will be different for real blind syndicates. So a blind syndicate who just has a portfolio manager and you'll have a lead market, which hopefully will have the right leadership capabilities, the right claims expertise to settle the claims, etc. And I think what will be absolutely critical is in order for those lead markets to invest in what they have to invest in to be a real lead market, with everything that goes with it, I think it's important that the market itself doesn't create such a cost differential between a blind following syndicate with only a portfolio management team rather than a full class of business underwriting team, that we don't destroy that dynamic 
and that the lead syndicates and effectively the London market still needs to maintain the leadership and invest in leadership and innovation and claims capabilities, etc. If we create too big a competitive disadvantage cost-based-wise between a blind-following syndicate and a lead syndicate, then we could end up sort of ultimately destroying the leadership proposition as a London market. Do you think that should be rebalanced by leader fees, for example? I think there will have to be something there so that you can justify the investment that you have to have as a leader versus what a blind follow market won't have to have in terms of the underwriting capabilities, the claims capabilities, etc. Because I think if the London market doesn't continue that investment and doesn't maintain its position as a lead global market, then I think the London market will not be the same global leading innovative market that it currently is today. At the moment, I suppose you become a lead because you want to get that showing because you get the best showing and also you get to choose how much to write of a wider selection of risks. So it is beneficial, surely. Is it something that is an investment that pays for itself? And also you have that expertise, of course. You know you should know the risk better than the blind follower. Yes, no, agreed. I think we'd all like to hope that through efficiencies and whether this is through the Blueprint 2, which you know I think the Blueprint 2 talked about 3% cost savings, but that's across both the broking and the underwriting community. So that would be a useful step in the right direction. And I think if we could combine cost savings there with, I think what we're seeing now with electronic placement, what we're seeing now with remote working may well result in the world that we see going forward, the new normal, if you like, won't be as office-based as we have been historically. Now, that may mean that everybody, Lloyds and all managing agencies, look at the way that they currently work and they currently operate and whether that's you know Lloyd's looking at the virtual room and making the existing underwriting room smaller hopefully there will be efficiencies and cost savings that come out of that because we won't have quite so many people sitting at desks in EC3 and ideally if you combine the three percent saving from the Lloyd's blueprint with hopefully some other savings put those two together, we become a more effective and a more competitive environment, which I think at the moment, the London market in terms of the expense base is not particularly competitive with other underwriting areas of the globe. If we can put those together, then we can create efficiencies. And if we can do that, the whole proposition of doing business in the London market will be cheaper and more efficient. I still think as a leader, there is a big investment. You know, if you want to invest in teams of underwriters, it is always going to be expensive to do so. As you say, there are advantages, but I think the way, as I said, it's not completely formulated the way the lead follow is going to work. And I think it will be fascinating to see how it evolves. But, you know, there are currently blind follow syndicates and, you know, they can say part of the following panel, I will follow TMK, I'll follow Beasley, I'll follow Hiscox. But generally, I think those blind follow markets would pick the market leaders. And I think it's just important that there is enough balance within the way the business is transacted to make sure that it is still effective to be a market leader, cost effective to be a market leader. Do you think the market will just sort itself out in one way or another? Competitive forces will come up with lots of different structures and then the most efficient ones are always going to win. I mean, effectively, the market will always find a way to sort itself out, yes. And I think strong underwriting companies 
will always see their way through good discipline, through proper underwriting procedures and practices. And obviously being named by all these blind syndicates as being one of their follows, that surely only gives you more power, does it not, in terms of your prestige? And the broker really has to see you now because you're really going to set the terms. Well, it certainly does add to the credibility of yourself as a market leader, which is always a good sign. And ultimately, you know, market forces will be what they'll be. And as we've seen over the last few years, and and for those of us certainly who've been around as long as I have, market cycles come and go. I think whether market cycles are as long and deep as they have been historically remains to be seen. But as you've said, market forces will always ultimately prevail. And also, for example, if you felt you were being receiving sort of disfavorable economics from some of these deals, could you not source your own follow capacity effectively? And obviously, we've had sidecars and consortia for many, many years, something similar to that, where you know people will follow you. So you can actually prearrange all of that so that when your line goes down, many other lines go down at the same time. And hopefully there, you could get your economics favorable to you. Yes. And I think ultimately, it is in the market's benefit that not everybody is a leader in every single line of business. Because at the end of the day, having teams overlapping within each managing agents isn't necessarily the most efficient way for the market to operate as well in terms of an underlying cost base. So there are definitely efficiencies to be had. And do you ever worry that there might not be as many second and third pairs of eyes, experience eyes, looking over those risks that know that class pretty well and can check that just in case your underwriters um, had a slip of the pen? I think equally importantly, we do need to have a training ground in London of underwriting talent. And the London market has thrived on the fact that we are a fantastic breeding ground for real quality underwriting talent. And I think it's important that we maintain that across our industry, if we are going to remain in the position that we are as a global market, we do have to continue that tradition of being a good training ground for underwriting talent. One last thing about technology, I've been reporting on this insurtech phenomenon over the last four or five years, and it's really sort of come to fruition with some of these fledgling companies now maturing quite substantially and getting IPOs and other things. Obviously, as an innovator, as a a long-time collaborator with innovators, what parts of that insurtech phenomenon have most interested and excited you and that you've got engaged with? We have looked at, and we're currently in discussion with several tech companies about how we could sort of effectively marry systems and data with underwriting capabilities to try and produce sort of real underwriting solutions as cost effectively as we possibly can. And, you know, that could be a, an app for, you know, real-time SME or micro-insurance or it could be something more akin to the parcel policy in the market currently. But I think one of the keys to it is to have the right products that work for both the carrier and the customer. So you can bring technology to bear to create efficiencies, but ultimately it's still got to be the right product for that solution and aimed at the right customers and delivered in what makes it a, the most cost-effective and efficient way. And do you think of any of these tools that that aim to improve productivity of of underwriters might be useful, the sort of things that are triaging all the different submissions and showing the underwriter, here's what I think are your top 10 most likely ones to get a firm order on this morning. I think ultimately, absolutely. Aligning risk appetite 
with the business, I think is one of the keys to the way that, that we should underwrite. And it clearly is a way of creating efficiencies across the board between the broking community and the underwriting community is making sure that risk appetite is aligned. I wanted to refocus some of the questions. Obviously, we, we talk about the industry sort of from within. And so for us, price rises are a good thing inherently and probably good for all of us and probably even good for journalists that write about the insurance industry. What about, wonder what your message is, you know, you, business that's connected to many, many policyholders around the world. What's your message to them in tough times, tough times for COVID for them, having to deal with rising prices and what's often going to be lower limits and more restrictive coverage? I mean, I think ultimately customers, whether they're big, sophisticated commercial customers with risk managers or they're smaller SME type customers, I think ultimately they're looking for consistency of cover and security in order for them to be able to manage their businesses. And coverages and pricing are subject to market conditions. Deductibles reduce, sublimits broaden in a softening market as well as prices reducing. And then clearly the reverse happens in a hardened market. But I think working with market leaders such as ourselves, we would always try and craft core coverages to suit the needs of most of the customers. And this is something that we think that we've done consistently over decades. And I think it's important that everybody realises that it's in the long-term good of both the carriers and the customers that they can rely on a well-capitalised, financially secure market to ensure their claims are settled properly, promptly and securely. And I think that does mean that over time, it's important that there is pricing adequacy in order for the market to continue offering that product and the coverage in a consistent manner. Because presumably no one would like to have a counterparty that's been losing money year on year on year, and then they may worry about the security. Absolutely. Do you segment your own customers in different ways? Sometimes, certainly I remember as a broker, we had some customers that we knew were always going to be the ones that push the price and widen the terms all and ride the market in extremis. And so get the most favorable terms possible in the softer sides of the market. And other customers were much more conservative and not pushing so hard for price reductions and increased coverage at softer markets. And generally, those more conservative ones that didn't push so hard when the market was in their favor tend to have more favorable terms when the market was back in the underwriter's favor. And obviously, the ones that were harder, more aggressive on the downside tended to get, let's say, not punished, but but okay, they didn't have such a favorable outcome when prices were rising. Is that a fair description? And does that sort of thing go on? I think you will always have more aggressive buyers and more sophisticated buyers who will perhaps push the envelope. I think from an underwriting point of view, the critical thing is having that underwriting discipline to charge what you think is a consistently fair and ideally a consistently adequate price from a technical underwriting point of view to make sure that that business is adequately rated to fit your portfolio. There will always be brokers who push very hard. There'll always be customers who push very hard. And particularly in a market where we're in a challenged market in a number of industry sectors with certain businesses really under strain. But I think there's still that key of underwriting discipline to make sure that you're giving your customers what you think is a fair deal with fair terms and conditions. 
but at the same time fits adequacy with your own portfolio. And as an underwriter, do you prefer the ones who are more conservative, who are more consistent in their outlook and hopefully presumably value your input and understand that you have to and respect your pricing? We have clearly, along with a number of people, we've got certain clients that we've had on the books literally for decades. And those are customers who we have very long-standing relationships with. I think both parties would say that we've got good relationships where we've given them what they think is the right product at the right price. And at the same time, we've benefited from them being long-standing customers of us. We're going to change the subject a little bit. And this is something, obviously, you're relatively new in TMK, but I suppose TMK, uh, looking as a journalist, sometimes been on the wrong end of um, some of the headlines and cultural conduct and diversity and inclusion stories that have been abroad in the London market in, the, in recent years. I'm just wondering, you know, someone who's coming new, how, how have you reacted and how's TMK reacted to that, to draw a line under it? And what sort of things have changed? TMK has worked extremely hard to ensure that sort of the current working practice and the current work environment is very much representative of our values today as a company. And that has meant changes. That's meant re-emphasising those values. And I think, I believe now we are in a very strong place. And in, indeed, my first year at TMK, I have only experienced a very culturally aware, diverse organisation with great communication and openness. So I'd like to think those historical issues are very much behind us now. Market-wide, well, I, I experienced this problem as editor of The Voice of Insurance. I'm Obviously, I'm, I'm focusing on senior members of the global insurance community. And I find there are not enough. There's not enough diversity within that community. Yeah. You know, I'm lucky if I get one in 10 female senior executives on the podcast, for example, when I look back and I think, goodness, it should be better than that. Well, for one, do you think they're moving too slowly? And two, do you think we might end up with, we've had rumbles from different regulators that we might have something imposed upon us, some sort of quotas and targets? I think it's inevitable, to be honest. And I think now everybody's publishing their numbers. It's absolutely there in black and white. I think the industry is moving in the right direction, but it is quite slow progress. And I think clearly we do need to attract a more diverse group. And that's right from sort of school, university leavers, you know, as well as those who are currently in other industries. TMK has got a great graduate scheme, which it's had for decades. And it's a great way of attracting talent and then nurturing that talent. And indeed, many of our senior people who are here today have been through that programme and 20 years later are still with us. And I think part of it historically has been a lack of understanding of the cross-section of diverse skill sets necessary to run an underwriting company. And I think hopefully that is slightly beginning to change, judging by the cross-section of CVs that we now get when we're advertising vacancies. We get a staggering cross-section of CVs. I mean, we get a staggering quantity of CVs but we do get a staggering cross-section of CVs. So, I mean, hopefully that means as an industry, we are starting to attract a broader cross-section of recruits than perhaps we would have done 10 years ago. But clearly it takes a long time to get those individuals embedded in, within our industry and then sort of see their careers progress through our industry. And of course, we've got to make sure that those diverse sort of pipelines coming through does survive, gets through into the 30s and 40s. They stick around long enough to become, to get those senior promotions. Absolutely. And it feels like we just need a bit more momentum 
now to plan for the future to make sure those skill sets and that diverse skill sets coming through. I suppose as journalists, and me particularly, we always look upon Japanese ownership as being something really permanent because of just we look at culturally, we look at um, you know, the sort of finance that's available to Japanese companies and a different philosophy and a strategic outlook on the world that really looks in terms of generations than just the next quarter. But in the last couple of years, we've had a divestment from Tokyo Marine Group, the Tokyo Millennium, and that kind of belied that stereotypical view. And perhaps it was a lazy view of ours, because of course, we're part of capitalist groups that need to make consistent profits. I wonder, what, what is your view as TMK? Do you still view Tokyo Marine as being a sort of permanent owner of TMK? Or do you feel now more like a, just a unit that needs to perform? I very do much see TMK as being hopefully a very long, long into the future part of the TM group. And TMK is a great Lloyds franchise and it gives TM access to a broad spectrum of business in the, the sort of wholesale ENS London world. And TM has recently invested in a number of management changes. And I think these are really going to position TMK extremely well for the future. And it will mean that we can give, hopefully, the level of returns that we are very much capable of and make us continue to make us a really attractive ownership proposition. So I think we are here for the duration, yeah. And I suppose if you perform uh, the best of your capabilities, you're going to be something that no one in their right mind would ever want to divest themselves of. Absolutely. (laughs) With that in mind, I'm going to leave you to it because I can see that I think we've established that this is a good market as long as there's not any more weird, unknown, unknown events and strange catastrophes and pandemics and other things that seem to keep blowing us off. Of course, it seems certainly looking at even the Lloyd's wide market results that there is a good underlying business there. And at some point, Mother Nature and other things will leave us alone to get those 90% sub 90 combined ratios back again. So I wish you very well in that task. And I hope you'll book in time to come and check in and speak to the voice of insurance again and see how you how you've got on so thank you so much for your time no thank you mark good to chat well i hope you enjoyed today's episode if you did don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program these really help get the word out before we go just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the voice of insurance podcasts Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>